<laughs> that is one big pile of shit. Uh, this could be it. We may be in some multiverse where I don't even exist. Don't knock rationalization. Where would we be without it? Yes, yes. Yes, without the use. To take them, take them out, take them down. Do your, do your stuff. Life uh, finds a way. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of The Complete Works Season 2, a deep dive into the career and films of actor Jeff Goldblum. My name is Mike Smith and joining me on this journey into the world according to Jeff Goldblum is my friend, co-host and fellow Goldblumaniac. Mike Tricia. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great. Uh, 75, huh? That's a big number. 75 is a big number. Yeah, we are really approaching the end of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about that would have been, you know, three years of Nicolas Cage. But at that, least. That, at least uh, before we got to episode 75. So we're really, we say this every episode, but we're flying through this one. We really, I mean, you know, it's weird. I feel like if people like just joined on for the Goldblum podcast, they may not realize how quickly we're flying through this one. Yeah. You know, yeah. because we, we did Nicolas Cage for a hundred ish episodes. It took us like five years to do all of Nicolas Cage. And I think we started the Goldblum podcast in 2020, right? Was that the thing? Yeah, I think it was February or like so yeah. March, maybe. It was right, right before the pandemic because we switched to weekly episodes yeah, for Goldblum. Within the first couple of weeks. Like our first our first two or three episodes were bi-weekly, like once every other week, like our old podcast had been. And then yeah, once the pandemic started, we were like, well, we got a lot more time on our hands. Let's just do both podcasts at once. <laughs> Yeah, and here we are two years later. <laughs> and here we are two years later. We have less time on our hands, but we're still doing both podcasts at once. You're welcome, listeners. Yes, the world uh, appreciates our sacrifices uh, for sure. So last week, we talked about Jeff Goldblum reuniting with filmmaker Wes Anderson, who he had previously worked with on Life Aquatic to make the Grand Budapest Hotel. And this week, we're talking about Goldblum reuniting with another filmmaker, a man who directed a movie that we've begun to call uh, maybe a secret masterpiece uh, on the yeah. podcast over the last few weeks. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to decide potentially by the end of this episode, that this guy's are both of our favorite directors of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Having seen precisely two of his films. Two, uh, yeah, I feel confident to make that call after only two. <laughs> I think you said, you basically said that after you uh, got into Paul Schrader, you were like, is Paul Schrader the greatest filmmaker of all time? I've seen first performed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had also seen doggy dog. <laughs> An exalted classic in the Schrader filmography, uh, <laughs> which, hey, great movie. Uh, so we're talking about director Roger Michel here, uh, a.k.a. the director of 2010's Morning Glory with Rachel McAdams, Harrison Ford, Diane Keaton and Patrick Wilson. <laughs> I'm really glad that came back. Yes, absolutely. I play the harp sound right there. Uh, as we mentioned on that episode, uh, Roger Michel is a British director, probably best known for directing 1999's Notting Hill, which was a pretty huge hit. At the time, also a movie that uh, I feel like I should watch now. I feel like it'll be charming. I've never seen it. I've never seen Notting Hill, but I, I have a very specific memory of being at a house party in Albany. And I believe it was even a St. Rose house party that we somehow went to. Okay. And one of my friends <laughs> saw that the person whose house it was had a DVD of Notting Hill. And he was like, I got to steal that. <laughs> we were like, what? And he's like, that movie rocks. I don't own it. I'm going to steal that before we leave the party. And I'm pretty sure he did. So I, that's my only exposure to the movie Notting Hill. 
So it must rock, I guess. <laughs> that's that's incredible. That's an incredible story right there, Mike. It's it's got it has me reflecting on the things that me and my friends have stolen from parties before. Yeah. Or have had stolen from us from <laughs> from parties. This we didn't steal this, but I remember there was one time uh our our friend came by after they had had a party, uh, and we were at the party and they were like, Hey, have you guys seen our shower curtain? <laughs> And we were like, what? And they were like, yeah, someone stole our shower curtain. <laughs> Incredible. We, <laughs> my, well, the apartment I used to rent, we had a paddle from some fraternity, like from the 70s or something that yeah. was like kind of mounted in our house and like on a wall. Did We kind of, we rented the house from our friend's brother and one of them had stolen it like, you know, <laughs> six years earlier. And we were always terrified that every party, somebody from that frat that we didn't know was going to walk in and see that and like kill all of them, <laughs> like find the holy grail of their frat, the, the missing paddle. So college is weird, I guess is what I'm saying. College is weird. I want one also add on to the stolen things thing. We had a stolen street sign on our porch in our apartment for a long I time. I remember that. Yeah. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, as our buddy, uh, one of our friends just came by and he had like a yield sign that he took from the streets and he <laughs> left it on our porch and it was just there for months and no police officer passing through ever questioned the <laughs> the yeah. facts that we had a yield sign it was just there i have no idea where it was stolen from and then one day it was just gone <laughs> it just was disappeared it just disappeared i have no idea what happened to that yield sign <laughs> amazing uh yeah college good times anyway notting hill was from 1999 <laughs> Uh, and over the course of Roger Michel's career, he frequently collaborated with writer Hanif Kurishi, a celebrated British novelist who wrote four of Roger Michel's projects, the most famous being 2006's Venus with Peter O'Toole, which he was nominated for an Oscar for that movie, I believe. Uh, the fourth and final collaboration between these two would take the form of a before sunrise esque comedy drama about an older couple on vacation in Paris. Uh, Roger Michel and Hanif Karishi developed the story for about seven years, and they were inspired after the two of them actually took a trip to Montmartre together. In 2014, that movie would get its US release, and it would be called The Weekend. Why are we doing it? Where are we going? Why? What? Ooh, what? We're in. Yes, exactly. Why don't we just stop and enjoy it? Too modern. Too empty. Too touristy. Your knee's gone yet? No, not yet. What are you doing here in Paris? God, it's our wedding anniversary. And now you will have time just for each other. Hmm. Shut up, you idiot. You make my blood boil like nobody else. A sign of a deep connection. Once the kids have gone, what's left of us? Beckett says, do we mean love when we say love? What else do we mean? That's stupid. What? Oh, oh, God, Nick! You can't not love and hate the same person. <laughs> it really hurts. Usually within the space of five minutes, in my experience. I think we've earned a very People don't change. They do. They can get worse. Do I please you, monsieur? Here's the bill. That is quite a lot of money. Get your coat. Don't tell the kids. Nick Burrs, who I found yesterday, kissing a woman passionately in the street. He later claimed that that woman was his wife. <laughs> to the future. Drugs, sex, divorce, death. 
Now, Le Weekend tells the story of a couple attempting to recapture their youth by visiting Paris, the city they went on their honeymoon some 30 years earlier. And along the way, they run into an old colleague, a charismatic writer, played by none other than Jeff Goldblum. Hey. Yeah, that's why we're talking about it today. Goldblum appears as Morgan, who recognizes the husband, Nick Burroughs, on the street and invites the couple to a party at his place. Nick Burroughs is played by Jim Broadbent, who is in many things, but I probably associate him most with Hot Fuzz, right? Not Cloud Atlas? I'm surprised. Ooh, I mean, Cloud Atlas, also also a classic. I mean, he plays the uh, the old guy who's stuck, stuck in the retirement home in Cloud Atlas, yeah. uh, and he's a delight, plus like five or six other roles, because everybody else does too. Um, but I feel like Hot Fuzz is the one, right? Crusty yeah, jugglers oh, yeah. and... All that kind of stuff. He's, he's the best. He's great. And he was also a uh, Professor Slughorn in the Harry Potter movies. Like every other British actor, he popped up in a Harry Potter movie at some point. Correct. Uh, and his wife, Meg Burroughs, is played by Lindsay Duncan, uh, who was on HBO's Rome uh, for a couple of seasons. And she played the theater critic in Birdman. She's also the voice of uh, TC-14 in Star Wars The Phantom Menace, uh, the baddest <laughs> bitch in the game. Uh, <laughs> that's a, a, a reference to a blank check episode from like six years ago. <laughs> Wow, deep cut. <laughs> That's back when before they were blank check and they were just doing like Phantom Menace episodes, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Phantom podcast back then. But there was a time when like Griffin Newman just got like really obsessed with the idea of TC-14, who if you don't remember who TC-14 is, is the uh, the silver C-3PO like protocol droid at the beginning of the movie. Um, that's on the ship, like with Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yes. That's yes. TC-14. And uh, it just became like a running bit where Griffin had a crush in TC-14. And like every time he introduced her, it was like, ah, TC-14, the baddest bitch in the game. Incredible. Uh, and it was the best. So there you go. TC-14. That's Lindsay Duncan in this movie. <laughs> she's she's Meg Burroughs. Uh, Goldblum's son, Michael, is played by British actor slash musician Ali Alexander, uh, who is also in Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void. And French actress Judith Davis plays Goldblum's wife, Eve. Marie-France Alverson from Patty Two plays Victoire Le Chapelle, another guest at the party. Uh, Le Weekend was written by Hanif Karishi and directed by Roger Michel and was given a limited release in the U.S. on March 14th, 2014, two years after Hyde Park on Hudson, which was Michel's previous film, and three years before his next film, 2017's My Cousin Rachel. Uh, it only raked in a little over $2 million at the box office and opened at number 52 that weekend. Oh, it goes that low, huh? It, it does go that low. <laughs> if you look, <laughs> it goes even lower, Mike. It goes. I think it goes like a hundred or something like that, uh, as far as box office mojo goes. Uh, there were two wide releases opening that weekend, though, Mike, and those were Need for Speed with Aaron Paul. Whoa, remember that movie? Yeah, what a! I never saw it, but I remember. Me either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's basically <laughs> that's how people remember Need for Speed. Is they think about it like, oh yeah, remember that. That that happened, that Aaron Paul was in an Eva Speed movie, and then nobody saw it. Was that the movie that Eddie Griffin crashed, like, whatever Ferrari or Lamborghini car? It's possible. That that sounds vaguely familiar. Anyway. Yeah. Michael Keaton was in that movie, too. He was the bad guy, I think. What? It was was Eva Speed. It was Michael Keaton was in that, and I think RoboCop was at the same time. The RoboCop remake was also happening, like, right around then, too. Michael Keaton was in that also. But yeah, Need for Speed with Aaron Paul, which I remember uh, specifically because the trailer for this movie i think premiered during the final episode of breaking bad uh which ends with aaron paul driving his car and like gunning it down the street yeah. uh and i was like oh man a perfect tie-in for <laughs> for need for speed right here 
Incredible. <laughs> what a picture. Really trying to give Aaron Paul that Fast and Furious franchise that just uh, did not come. Uh, also opening that weekend was Tyler Perry's The Single Moms Club at number five. And then also in the top 10 were a lot of the same movies as last week because this is just one week later. Mr. Peabody and Sherman's number one, 300 Rise of an Empire, uh, Nonstop, The Lego Movie, Son of God, The Grand Budapest Hotel, which has expanded and rose to the number eight spot uh, in the top 10. Uh, Frozen's also in there and The Monuments Men. Uh, so cool. I mean, cool to see Grand Budapest uh, rising uh, after we saw it last week, which I think it opened in like number 17 or something like that and it opened in like four theaters. And now it's expanded a little bit and the uh, the take has risen. Yeah. Yeah. Good to see, uh, you know, that struggling director, Wes Anderson, <laughs> gain some notoriety. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, all right. The IMDb plot synopsis for the weekend reads a British couple returned to Paris many years after their honeymoon in an attempt to rejuvenate their marriage. So, Mike. What were you expecting going into that weekend and what are your overall thoughts on the movie? Yeah, going into it, I wasn't really uh, aware. I didn't I don't, I don't remember if you told me that it was the same director of Morning Glory. Otherwise, my bar would have been much higher. I think no. I definitely <laughs> mentioned it at the end of last week's episode. You probably did. But bold of you to assume I remember anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wasn't quite sure. I didn't really know what to expect. And then, you know, in the first couple of minutes, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be on this ride of just like a bitter old couple like arguing and sniping at each other for an hour and a half. I'm not 100% how down I am for that. Yeah. But then but then it, it kind of like opens up a little bit. There's a couple moments I can't quite pin down. It might be like the mini bar uh, kind of thing. Like right after that, the first you know 10 minutes or whatever, when they get to the actual ho- the hotel they want, whatever. Um, and they kind of like have a moment and like share genuine connection and you're like, Oh, wait a second. These guys, they, these people actually do love each other, I think. Uh, and then you do that, get, you ask that question a thousand more times, uh, for the rest of the runtime. But yeah, having it just sort of be this kind of weirdly wholesome, very funny, uh, at times, very funny, like before sunset kind of thing where it's just, it takes place over one lay weekend. Uh, and then <laughs> it's just, this couple kind of like re- rejuvenating their relationship or exploring it, but at the same time destroying it. But also by the end, I think maybe they're back together. Um, and like, actually, no, we do love each other. And going through that journey with them, I think is very entertaining and beautiful and, and heartfelt. And uh, Jim Broadbent is the best actor of all time. I'm pretty sure. Um, <laughs> I already kind of thought that, but watching this, I was like, I confirmed. Um, I haven't really seen him in a ton, but every time I see him, he's the best thing ever. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, Lindsay Duncan was amazing. And I think their relationship felt like real in some fucked up way. Like I, I, like I said, at the beginning, it, be, it feels like it's going to be one dimension where it's just, she's bitter and frigid and like puts him down the whole time. And then, but, but, but not really a whole lot, but then she does, but then not really. Um, so it's weird. And, and I really, I really enjoyed this movie is just kind of like, you know, I'm not 60 and married for 30 years. So it's not quite that relatable <laughs> of a, of a like topic, but just the like human connections and desire for that, I think is relatable. And like just trying to navigate life and regrets and stuff like that is really beautiful. And, and yeah, I think this is a weird juxtaposition from Morning Glory, which is like the very light and fluffy. And we talked about that. It's just like a cheerful, by golly, they're going to do it. And here we're like getting divorced or whatever at a restaurant and then skipping out on the bill and being in love again. It's weird as fuck. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, overall, I really, really enjoyed Le Weekend. Yes. Yeah. I uh, also enjoyed Le Weekend. I thought it was very charming. I think, uh, you know, this the central couple of Jim, Rob, Ben, Lindsay Duncan, I think they're incredibly likable at times uh, and then incredibly unlikable 
at other times. And it's like, oh, it's just like real life. Like it's Whoa. just people. They're complex, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah. it is a lot like the before movies, which have you seen those movies, Mike, the uh, before sunrise, sunset, midnight? No, I've never actually seen them, but like pop culture osmosis sure. wise. Yeah, basically. Man, I should have thrown <laughs> that. I'm going to throw that into my next uh, Mike Makes Mike Watch. Put all three really, on there, yeah. I really wish I had, I mean, I'll, I'll put the first one on there, <laughs> most likely, just to get you started. But uh, yeah, it's there. It's an incredible trilogy of movies. It's been a long time since I've watched them. I bought the right Criterion Blu-ray pack of the three of them a while back. Uh, I've been meaning to kind of do a rewatch of them at some point. I was kind of hoping there would be some kind of like announcement that maybe a fourth one would be happening around this time because it was like nine year gaps between the three movies. Uh, And it's just about this would be the ninth year after Before Midnight uh, 2022. So I'm like, uh, maybe uh, we'll see what happens. But at the same time, Before Midnight like ends it really well. And like, Mm. I mean, they all end it really well. So it's like tough to be like, because I I remember when Before Midnight came out, everybody was like, oh, man, I really hope this doesn't suck. Like it was like there's a lot of people who were very invested in those first two movies. I think Before Midnight pretty much delivered on what people wanted. Um, But this feels a lot like the Before movies, just like a couple walking around beautiful city kind of just philosophizing about life and love and everything. And I think nobody really does that quite like those movies do like Richard Linklater and Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, that team working together, but there have been different variations on the idea. And I think this one is a really solid uh, delivery on that concept. I also really liked uh, shit house, which was uh, a movie from last year or 2020. That was like a college kid version of uh, before sunrise. Yeah. I remember you telling me about that, but I've never seen it. It's really good. I like that one a lot. There was also uh, I never saw this one, but I think it was called Barry. Uh, and it's like young Obama meeting Michelle Obama. And it's like a before sunrise thing of their like first date or whatever. I, I feel like it's probably the most like jerk offiest motion movie of all time. But at the same, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, it's weird that like that was a movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. That sounds weird. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. But uh, I mean, that was like 26, that was like 2015, 2016, whatever that came out. But yeah, I think let weekend is a, a really charming version of the concept. I, I really loved, I think what you were saying, I mean, this is a very, like, it just feels very authentic in terms of the way it presents this couple and all their flaws. They are by no means the best people, but they are trying and they're, endearing despite their faults uh, in many ways. Uh, And I think kind of running into Jeff Goldblum kind of re-triggers something within them. uh, And that's kind of an interesting thing to explore uh, throughout the movie. Um, But I think, you know, anybody who has been in like a relationship for an extended period of time, even if like I've been uh, with my girlfriend for two years at this point, I have not been with her for 30 years like uh, (laughs) they have been in this movie. Um, But I think there there is like something to be said about the way this movie just like really gets those like subtle observations is like snipes between the two people that like get under your skin in a way that like nobody else can quite get under your skin in that way kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think this movie really uh, captures that really well. Yeah. But, but like ultimately I have a question about the end (laughs) basically. Okay. Um, But we'll get there. I'm sure. But yeah, the way that this portrays the relationship and how they're able to flip back and forth and they kind of acknowledge that sort of like, uh, I can't remember exactly like towards the beginning, I guess where they're like at the church and uh, Jim Broadbent gets that phone call from his son and, like, invites the son and his family to move back in with them. And they have, like, a big argument, hushed whispers, you know, because ah, they're yeah. in a church. And he's complaining, like, you never let me touch you <laughs> and all this stuff because he tries to hug her. But then they, like, kind of – she's just kind of like, well, okay, kiss me, fine. And then they, like, have a big goof because the person yells at them for kissing at a church. Right. And then they uh, giggle and run out of the church. And you're like, well, okay, but they're still in love, though. I don't get it. It's wild. It's interesting, <laughs> you know? It's one of the, I think it's one of the things where like, you know, you're with that person so much that you kind of take that love for granted. And, but like, it's still present. It's still there and that kind of yeah. thing, even though 
you're arguing all the time and it feels like you hate each other, but there's a deep undercurrent of love underneath. Uh, and I think this movie plays that. Like, again, Jim Broadbent and Lindsay Duncan are two very good actors. And I think they kind of play off each other incredibly well in this movie. Yeah. And they get lots of hot, hot, steamy, old person sexual tension. <laughs> So you get, which there's not enough of that in movies. I, you know, yeah. you, 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 all, all movies are, you know, for young people these days. Uh, and even the, and even the movies that are for young people, there's no sex in those movies anymore. It's all, you know, Marvel superheroes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so it's, so it's nice to have a movie that's, that is about this older couple, uh, and about like kind of the struggle. Like it's very rare that you get a movie that is about like senior citizens, uh, just kind of living their lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Unless it's like a Clint Eastwood movie or something, and then it's usually something different than what like this movie is. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they really count, you know? <laughs> These guys aren't crying macho, you know? It's <laughs> I didn't even see Cry Macho. <laughs> I don't know. What was the the mule? What was the name of that movie? The Mule, yeah. yeah. I saw the mule. Mule's fine. Uh Clint Eastwood has two three ways in that movie. Uh so you <laughs> what? Did you not know that? <laughs> No. <laughs> oh yeah, Clint, Clint Eastwood uh, in the in the Mule has not one but two three ways with girls that are like sixty years younger than him. Uh, what? It's it, he's like ninety years old in the Mule. <laughs> Weird. Uh, it's insane. It's a movie that he directed and stars in, and he gets two three ways in the movie. So if you want to like compare like realistic depictions <laughs> of, <laughs> of of love between older characters, uh, this beats out the Mule by a long shot. I think. Mm, good. 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 <laughs> Um, but all right, so Jeff Goldblum is in Le Weekend, Mike, playing a character named Morgan, who I think is really just a variation of Jeff Goldblum. Uh, what did you think of him in this movie? I think he's great in this movie. I think he plays that kind of upper crust academic academia author person very well as someone who was an English master. Uh, <laughs> wow. Is he right? Um, yes. You know, you, you I, went to a lot of the kinds of parties that uh, Jeff Goldblum was hosting, right? Mike? A couple of them. Yeah, I went to a couple uh, functions, I'll say. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of those things where you're just like, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but people talking about like, you know, going to the literary club or whatever, whatever that thing he wants them to join for four, put me down for 4K, you know, that whole thing, <laughs> right. which is hilarious. And you're um, there like, have you guys watched The Witcher on Netflix? It's really. <laughs> <laughs> you guys want to talk about Behind Enemy Lines? Um <laughs> Are you familiar with the oeuvre of Zach Penn? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, yeah. But I think his performance overall is very funny. Like, you know, it's like a kind of injection of like energy, young energy. Because like, him and him and Jim Broadbent are supposed to have gone to college, to Cambridge together. But Jim Broadbent looks a lot older than Jeff Goldblum. I don't know if that's just, you know, aging or whatever. But I presumably they're kind of the same age. But but Goldblum has this, you know, he's got the young new wife. He's living, he's moved here to Paris. And they kind of goof about that in the beginning of the movie when they're like, we should just sell our apartment and move here. Uh, and he did that and all that stuff. So this kind of like mirror to uh, Jim Broadbent for like, this is could be could have been his life, can, can be his wife, uh, life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, his ultimate decision be like, fuck that. I want the life that I currently have is great. Um, and yeah, I think, I think Goldblum's performance is, is very fun and he's just like so desperate for friends too. Uh, <laughs> and he plays that very well. So yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed Goldblum in this movie. Um, every one of your co-stars talked about the script, the script and the script and the script. Was that the first thing that you, you read the script and you said yes, or how did it go? I sure did. Uh, but I also said, uh, a, a resounding yes in my mind when I knew that Roger Michelle, with whom I'd worked a little before, was going to direct it. He's as wonderful a human being and talented and brilliant a director as I know. Uh, so those two things, and then Lindsay and Jim, that's not only a yes, that's a, she's 
how often do, this is a once-in-a-lifetime thrill. Yeah, me too. I, I think he really is terrific in this movie, and I think he comes in at like just the right time too. Yeah, because uh, uh, he comes in maybe like thirty to forty minutes into the movie, so you really and you've just been following this couple this entire time, uh, and so it's like just at the point where like their sniping could get like tiresome, you know? Like I feel like if Goldblum wasn't in this and it was just these two like sniping each other for ninety minutes, that could that could wear on you after a bit, you know? And I think when Goldblum shows up. He like injects the movie with like just the right new sense of charisma that like mixes up their entire dynamic, getting them into his party and stuff. I think it all works to make the movie feel like all that more vibrant. Yeah. And it's sort of like it's after their divorce (laughs) or they're going to get separated. Right. It's after their big dinner when they dine and dash. I don't really remember the exact conversation. There's a lot of things like that where I was like, did this just happen? And then they never acknowledge it again. And then. It's weird. But yeah, I think I think you're right. He comes in right at the right at just the right moment for like this could get boring. We could we could just kind of be doing this scene over and over and over again, but then Goldblum shows up and he's Goldblum and you're like, "Oh, this is fun." Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, like you were saying, he kind of represents this version of the life that Broadbent could have led. He I mean, he talks about Broadbent as if he was like a mentor for him when they were in college together. And you know, you see Goldblum with like this wild success, these like interesting friends, these adventures. Um, but then there's that scene kind of when they first get to the party and he's talking to Broadbent and he and Jim Broadbent had this conversation and he's like really just kind of stuck in these self-destructive patterns. And that's kind of evidenced by his like starting a family all over again with a new wife, even though he felt trapped by the first one. So like, why would he do it again kind of thing? Yeah. Um, but he just like keeps talking about like, well, he has this like egotistical need to be adored by someone and all that kind of stuff. And so and so you're seeing Jim Broadbent kind of see that and being like, OK, maybe his life isn't like as great as it seems to be on the surface kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, when Broadbent gets high with Goldblum's son uh, yeah. and they kind of have that moment, he I feel like is when he realizes like, oh, wait, <laughs> this sucks. Or yes. it could suck. Yeah. Goldblum like hurt a lot of people, uh, you know, on his way out and that kind of thing. I mean, he met the son mentions that like the mom tried to kill herself like after Goldblum left. Right. Yeah. Just casually just like throwing it out there like, oh, she's fine now. But like she threw herself out a window, all that kind of stuff. So it is just like one of those things like, oh, man, you really like you get this like sort of weird thing and like, you know, his his relationship with Goldblum is really strained. Like he talks about how uh, Goldblum like, you know, likes the idea of his son being around. But as soon as his son is like in the same room as him, like he can't they can't communicate with each other. There's no talking to one another. Right. Poor, poor Goldblum, I guess, you know, in, yeah. in a weird way. Poor everyone. Poor, like, poor you know, poor everybody. What I, what I like about these kind of movies and, you know, the Wes Anderson movies, just everyone's just sad all the time. And I think we need more movies that show how sad people are at all. times. Yes. <laughs> Correct. That's why I feel better about being sad all the time. Exactly. Yeah. It gives you an outlet. It gives you an outlet. That's why I was such a big fan of Bojack Horseman on Netflix. Because uh, it was a really sad show. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a show that really like cut to the core of clinical depression in ways that are deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the weekend, I'm not going to say it goes that far, but it's it's it gets to the core sadness of some of its characters. And like the idea of like th- these two characters, uh, Jim Robin and Lindsay Duncan, they are older. They are closer to the end of their lives than the beginning of their lives uh, and kind of reflecting back and like, well, what have we done with the lives that we led sort of thing? I think Jim, Jim Robin has this great line uh, where he uh, they're walking through a cemetery of like famous philosophers. Uh, and he's like, I'm really amazed at how uh, mediocre I turned out to be or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I forget exactly. Yeah, he's like, you know, was could have been a rock star in the, the like academic world. But like, here I am instead. Yes, exactly. So uh, how does this fit into the roles that Goldblum's played so far, do you think, Mike? Well, there's a little detail in the background of the scene that we were just talking about when uh, Jim Broadbent and Goldblum are having that conversation in his little office and behind over Goldblum's shoulder is a saxophone. So, you know, I'm going to bring up Lush <laughs> Life. <laughs> 
Well, he dig on that saxophone ski, man. Exactly. 100%. <laughs> yes. Although this movie does have like a, a pretty good like jazzy piano score. Yeah. Um, that's kind of going throughout, which actually reminded me of Little Surprises, the uh, the short film that Goldblum directed. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. This, the score to this is incredible, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else did I have down? I could, Beyond Therapy, and I couldn't remember if it's because it was Paris pretending to be New York or New York pretending to be Paris. I knew there was some dumb shit that that movie did, and I couldn't yep. remember which one it was. I also mentioned Beyond Therapy. Uh, uh, this is a much better movie than Beyond Therapy, I'll 100%. say that. It was filmed in Paris, but it's pretending to be New York. But at the end, they show the Eiffel Tower. Right. <laughs> so it, <laughs> so it, it feels like you're in Paris the entire time. Every actor who's not Jeff Goldblum, Julie Haggerty, and Christopher Guest is French. Yeah, uh, they're spending all their time in French restaurants. Like it, it feels like you're in Paris. It's very weird. It just has like a subway system, basically. Yeah. Um. What else did I put down? I put down uh, the tall man because it's you know not a romantic comedy per se, but it's about a relationship kind of deal. Yeah, the tall guy actually. Tall guy. Whoops. Tall yes. guy. Yes. Which also was written by uh, Richard Curtis, or who wrote Notting Hill, which Roger Michelle directed, and then Roger Michelle's working with Goldblum here. So there you go. It really, it all comes back to Notting Hill. Um, <laughs> yeah, we should watch it sometime. We should. I guess we should. Let's be a bonus do, episode of the podcast. <laughs> we got to do uh, Hugh Grant. Is he in that? Uh, I want to say yes. The guy. We can't do Hugh know. Grant. We already did nine months. Ah oh, man. By our own rules, he's excluded. He's excluded. Uh, and then also shooting Elizabeth because that was also like a romantic comedy kind of thing, right? If I remember correctly, uh, about a couple that hates each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I put that one down in the big, like the first ten minutes, or I was like, oh, it's one of these. Uh, I wrote down shooting Elizabeth, but yeah, so there, there you go. Yeah. Most, mostly lush life though. Yeah, fair enough. Lush life. I also mentioned uh, that Golden's role kind of reminded me of his role in Perfume, which remember oh, that movie? Yeah, weird. I mean, which that movie also ends with him sort of beginning the cycle all over again with his new lover, and that kind of reminded me of the way he like kind of started this new cycle again with his new family in this movie. Um, little surprises as well, and also that kind of just like air of intellectualism that uh, I think Goldblum's persona just sort of slots into in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, like whenever you see Goldblum playing himself in something or if, if he's going to be like in an interview or something, he'll be like referencing these like obscure philosophers or writers or whatever. Uh, he'll show up at Werner Herzog's dinner party and, uh, you know, uh, incident Loch Ness. Uh, yeah. I think it's on display in like Pittsburgh. You see that kind of side of Goldblum as, as his character. So that kind of thing. I think that's also kind of a factor into Goldblum's persona and his whole character in this movie. Uh, as well yeah that all tracks I, I i enjoy that like now it's also like kind of a pseudo authority thing that we've been tracking or you've been tracking recently yeah uh, that sort of fits in as you know he's a writer and all this stuff in this movie uh and like anytime he's got glasses on you're like oh smart gold blue. <laughs> yeah to show the time it's fast exactly uh, <laughs> all right so let's uh let's run the movie down scene by scene start running into lit weekend i uh, got that jazzy score going on as it starts and uh you open with nick and meg on the train just Annoying each other. <laughs> yeah. This is where I was like, oh, boy, I don't know. <laughs> but that's also, it's because you haven't seen Before Sunrise. Uh, yeah. And that, uh, Before Sunrise also opens on a train. The way Before Sunrise works is that's like when you see Celine and Jesse meet for the first time. Like, they have not met at that point. Uh, and they have this, like, kind of big conversation between the two of them, like, uh, on the train together. Uh, and so this almost feels like a mirror image of Before Sunrise. Like, this is what Before Sunrise will look like. 30 years from now kind of thing, uh, which, I, which I guess is before midnight. But I think this is like even further than before midnight is, you know? Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised because this movie definitely, particularly towards the end, uh, like openly wears its like cinematic heritage kind of thing on its on its sleeves. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of like deliberate nod to that 
type of movie, you know? Right. Did you catch the uh, the dance they were doing at the end, Mike? Yeah, of course. They show you earlier in the movie. <laughs> oh, right. they, they watch the movie. In the you are correct. Room. You are correct. Yeah. Uh, Which I could who Well, I guess we'll get to it. Yeah. What, what were you going to say? Um, I was going to ask. I, I recognized it as like a French New Wave movie, but I don't remember. I don't know what movie that is. I just okay. know that scene. It's a, it's Band of Outsiders uh, ah. is the movie, which I have also not seen as well. But uh, it was referenced in a few letterbox reviews, which is why I was able to pick up on that. But we'll talk yeah. about that when we get to it. But yeah, so they're on the train annoying each other. They get to their hotel. Meg is not happy with the hotel room that they're at. It's, a, it's the same hotel they stayed at when they were in Paris 30 years ago. Uh, or so Jim Broadbent believes. It, it, I think it's like implied that he's not like entirely sure, but he's like pretty sure this is the same hotel. <laughs> yeah, and uh, like it's beige now or something. Yeah. He keeps saying like they no, they redecorated. Um, yeah, and, and it's it's like painted beige now, and also there's like construction going on outside. There's like a jackhammer going the entire time. <laughs> yeah, N- not satisfied. Yeah, so she's uh, not happy with the hotel room, and uh, he's like trying to talk to the concierge, and she storms out. And they try to get a new hotel. If only the Grand Budapest was right around the corner, Mike. If only. That, that, that would have been great. Uh, they should have headed to Zabroka instead of Paris, is what we're saying. Uh, and also, we should watch the Grand Budapest Hotel again. <laughs> I uh, did rewatch it this past week. Did you really? You watched <laughs> yeah, it again? Yeah. Great movie. It's the best. Great movie. Yeah. Uh, actually, our, our uh, buddy Kyle, music supervisor slash producer Kyle, um, edited the Grand Budapest Hotel podcast and then texted me and said, I, I had to watch Grand Budapest Hotel after you guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. So uh, that was pretty great. I'm glad we got one person to uh, to watch Grand Brew Fest who had already seen it, but still. So they go out, try to find a new hotel, and uh, they end up finding this new hotel, like a super nice, fancy hotel. And, uh, you know, it's it seems like it's about to be booked solid, but they end up with the prestige suite of the hotel for two nights. And they mentioned like, oh, Tony Blair slept there. It's very prestigious. And uh, I think Jim Broadbent has a really good line was like, uh, somebody changed the sheets or whatever. Because yeah. this was like around the time that like Tony Blair started getting like accused of having an affair. I think that was the whole thing. Oh, OK. So that, that was like 2013, 2014. So it would have been like right as the weekend was being made. <laughs> Amazing. So he has that line like oh, somebody changed the sheets like as a joke about that. Uh, which I thought was pretty funny. And so they go to, they, they take the prestige suites uh, and they go up there. There's a view of the Eiffel tower from the balcony. They seem satisfied with this new room. Yes. Yeah. And even right before that. Right. So like, this is kind of where I was like, what's going on. Right. Cause right. Meg, uh, Lindsay Duncan's character is very like mean and she just like abandons uh, Nick right at the yeah. first hotel almost. Right. She's like, while he's arguing with the concierge, she just like gets up and gets in a taxi and he's yep. like, no, wait, 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 wait. And like manages to stop him before <laughs> she drives away. Uh, so that was where I was like, oh, is, is this going to just be weird and like uncomfortable? Like, I don't know what the point of this is yet, but then there's that whole montage of them driving around Paris. Cause she just like slips the driver 20 bucks or whatever, 20 euros. And is, yeah. they just kind of drive around and look at the sites and it's a lot. It's like a really kind of beautiful montage. And eventually they just find the hotel, right? Like I don't think they're looking for this hotel. They just find a hotel. Right. And I was like, wow, okay, wait, hold on. Like we got like a little whiplash stuff going on here. And then there's this, you know, they see the view and all that stuff. And, and she goes for the mini bar and he's like, well, we don't, we're not that excited. Like, <laughs> like yeah. try not to spend all their money. Uh, and the way that, that arc of like their money is so interesting in this also. Yes. And this is, I guess is the beginning of that where they're just like, kind of like, fuck it. And they just <laughs> open all the champagne bottles and stuff in the mini bar. Yep. Yeah. And the way that plays out by the end is pretty great. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we'll get to that when it does, but, uh, yeah. So they're in the hotel room and, uh, you know, Nick, you know, mentions like, oh, maybe we should have sex. And she's like, no, we're not going to do that. 
yeah. you know, they have had like a, you know, kind of a long conversation about it, uh, you know, which is pretty funny. They're kind of like just kind of going back and forth. Like, why do you want to have sex? Come on. Like, your, your vagina is like a closed loop, but I can't ever see like your or whatever. You know, there's yeah. some funny uh, observations being made here. Yeah, I think she calls it your half erect sausage. I yes. Is what, <laughs> is what she says to him. <laughs> Which is pretty good. Uh, and then from there, uh, they're outside and they're about to, uh, I think, go in, into the church. And uh, Nick gets a call from their son. And, uh, you know, it's implied that uh, the son has recently moved out and he has a wife and a kid. Uh, and like, yeah, maybe it's uh, maybe you guys can let us move back in. And he's like, oh, well, you know, if you think that's for the best, like he's like Jim Broadbent's like a pushover kind of about it. And he's right. like, yeah, I guess, you know, you can do that. And then he and Meg fight about that as soon as he gets off the phone. And, uh, you know, they're talking about it in the church and. All that kind of stuff. And they're t- they're basically arguing about it the entire time they're in the church. And then, like, as they're leaving the church. Uh, and then, like you said, they have, like, this kiss. And somebody shushes them. And then they, like, run out of their, like, school children. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, like, the, the way that it's able to to go, like, change back and forth from them being, like, bitter assholes to each other. And then, like, little giddy, giddy people in love. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And then they're outside the church. And they're, like, kind of goofing off. And uh, she pushes him. And he falls down. And he hurts his knee. <laughs> Yeah. He's like, oh, God. And he's just like on the floor. Like, <laughs> it's pretty uh, good. Yeah. And she's just like, come on, get get up, <laughs> you big baby. Uh, and all that kind of stuff, which is pretty funny. And he's like, can you walk? And he's like, oh, I'll try. And he, like, <laughs> they're going. And uh, then there's a, a choosing a restaurant montage, which is also lovely. Uh, this yeah. Is, what a delight. Yeah. This is really great. And honestly, like it felt it accurately reflected what it's like to just be in like a like be a tourist in a city and like search for a place to eat kind of thing i felt like because mm-hmm. i've been on like th- those kind of long walks with like my family or whatever where we're just like walking past restaurants and i'm in the mood where i'm just like we just got to sit down and eat somewhere yeah <laughs> we just have to go anywhere but we ha- like there's always a thing where like we have to go stop and look at the menu and like everybody has to be satisfied with what's on the menu and then take a look inside and then okay if that doesn't pass the test then we gotta go to the next place and all this kind of stuff. So there's this uh, restaurant montage where they do that and you, you have them like say things like, oh, it's too empty. Uh, it's too touristy. Like you got to go on to the next place. <laughs> yeah. And I love uh, I forget the too empty one is pretty funny. But then um, where she's like, oh, too touristy. And he Jim Broadbent scoffs and he's like, Psh, even the menus in English and they like walk away. <laughs> <laughs> It's very good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but they eventually find a restaurant to go to. Uh, and <laughs> Nick at the restaurant reveals uh, that the college that he teaches at um, has insisted that he take an early retirement. Uh, yeah. So he has officially left his job uh, or he's no longer working at the college. And this is, he's breaking the news to Meg here. Uh, and she's like, well, why didn't you tell me about this? Like, uh, I wanted it to be a surprise, <laughs> like that kind of thing. But the reason he uh, has insisted on taking like the college insisted on taking an early, I guess a student complained about a comment that he made about a black student's hair, I think is what happened. Right. Yeah. But they don't. They, it's it's really they, they don't say they don't say that it's a black student until later in the movie. Yeah. But it's real awkward because he says what he said to her uh, about like something uh, if you spent more time on your studies than your hair or the same amount of time on your studies as your hair, like you would escape your background. I think something says, like or that upbringing yeah. or something. So it's, like, so it's like heavily implied that it's a black student or like an ethnic student of some kind. Yes. Yeah. And you're just like, I was so like, 
like every cringe, every like so uncomfortable, like the whole like tone deaf racism and not being aware of it and all this stuff. And it was like gross. But then they acknowledge it by the end of the movie, and he like says like you know for speaking inappropriately to a black student. You're like oh well okay at least you know that you're a fucking asshole uh, right. And it's also one of those things that like it just feels like a very authentic thing that a 60 year old professor at a college would say to a black student, right? Absolutely, yeah. Just like what a, it's just bad. But there's also in this scene the very interesting detail that they're a in this meal same side of the table couple. Did you notice that? Right. Yes. Like, yeah. And they even show the empty chair on the other side of the table once. Right. So they could um, be across from each other, but they're sitting next to each other. And then at the dinner scene when Meg is like gonna break up with them or whatever the fuck is happening, <laughs> yeah. which we'll get to. Yeah. They're across from each other. I was like, hmm, hashtag details. Yes, interesting, interesting. Uh, so yeah, so he reveals that uh, he's been laid off from work, essentially. Uh, and then they go to the cemetery filled with famous philosophers. Uh, you know, all the uh, all the greats are there, all of his heroes, because he's like a philosophy professor. Right. Um, and, you know, that's when he has the line, like, I'm amazed at how mediocre I turned out to be. And, you know, she's like kind of trying to reassure him, like, no, you've led an, in- an interesting life. You've done all, have accomplished all these things, and you're going to write your book at one of these days. And, like, all that kind of stuff. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. Like, I could have been this, I could have been that, you know, and I wasn't. Uh, and they have this like scene in the cemetery and then they go back to the hotel room for a bit. There's a scene where Jim Broadbent is jamming to uh, Bob Dylan's like a Rolling Stone, which is pretty great. That's like one of the most devastating scenes ever. Yes. Like him drinking out of the little like airplane, bo- like airport drink- liquor bottles. Yeah. Like half mumbling the words to Rolling Stone and like, <laughs> I forget what, what specific lyrics he's singing, what like part of that. Yeah, but, but like, he's, he's like enjoying gutting. it for a long time and then there's like the one part where it's, I think it's like, uh, ha- like I think it's the chorus. It's like, how does it feel to be on your own, no yeah. direction, home? And like, it's just like hits him so hard, and he's just, like standing there, like alone in the center of the room. I think he's in his underwear. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, it's just this very like sad moment. <laughs> and it like just hard cuts the music and cuts goes to the next scene, and just yep. like fucking, oh man, <laughs> it's like right after we learn that he lost his job and everything and yeah. yeah it's sad it's it's pretty intense uh and then after this uh, this is when they go to dinner now they're sitting across from each other like you said and uh meg tells him that uh, she feels that she's done with school she's also a teacher right uh and what i like about this movie too is like these, these are kind of details that you kind of just pick up through conversation they don't like ever like spell it out for you that like they are what they are they kind of just like get it as the movie goes on kind of thing as your wife and also a professor exactly <laughs> Uh, well, it sounds like she's like a teacher of like a high school or something. I don't think she's like a college professor. Yeah, I don't Uh, remember. um, But I think she's like a teacher of like a younger class of students. But she feels that she's done with her school. Uh, Like she knows she doesn't want to run the department or anything. And she just feels like she wants like a fresh start from it all. And this is when she like starts dropping the hint that like, you know, maybe this relationship isn't working. Uh, And he's like, so you've picked our anniversary to dump me. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, And she's like, I'm not doing that. But like, we should be able to talk about it. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's where I was like a little like my my memory gets a little foggy around the resolution of this conversation because then she's like, "Okay, just go out and pretend to smoke and I'll meet you out back. Yes. And I was like, how did we get the, what's the bridge between these two things? Yeah. And that's, and that's what he does. So he, he gets up and like leaves and goes like standing outside. And then she like sneaks out, like through the cellar behind the restaurant, kind of evading waiters as she's going and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And they dine and dash the restaurant and she like escapes through, through like the alleyway outside of the restaurant. He has to like break a gate down in order to get her out of there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love that. That scene is hilarious. Cause it's like really tense. <laughs> like when a she's, 
she's trying to sneak out of the restaurant, like downstairs through the back alley hallways and stuff. And she ends up in the kitchen at one point by accident. Yeah. And then she's like sneaking past this manager's office kind of thing on her tiptoes, like in Mission Impossible, like toast, toast. <laughs> uh, and then, and then, yeah, he's like has to break the gate open. And of course it's like clang and he goes flying into the garbage cans. <laughs> and it's like, it's genuinely hilarious. Yes, absolutely. And that, that like adrenaline rush, like it makes them very passionate and uh, they start like making out in the middle of the street. Yeah. Uh, they like sprint down the road and do the whole like yep. thing, you know? Yeah. And then they have like this big passionate kiss in the street. And then as they're making out, who shows up? But one Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum shows up and he recognizes Nick and he sees them and is like, oh my God, who is this that you're with? And it's like, oh, this is my wife. I've never seen a man kiss his wife that passionately before, that kind of thing. And yeah. uh, you know, he mentioned like, you know, I thought you lived in New York. Like, well, I did, but I live in Paris now. I've got a new wife. Uh, you guys should come out to this party that I'm having tomorrow. You know, he's very excited to see uh Jim Broadbent's character. Yeah, yeah. And especially at the party, like all the stuff and he the like big toast he gives Goldblum's character. Uh, like you mentioned, he taught, he sees Nick as like a mentor and like abuse yeah. and like an inspiration for everything he's ever done in his life. Post Cambridge is all because of what would Nick Burroughs do, which is weird <laughs> um, <laughs> or interesting in, in, in the way, like you said, in the cemetery scene, like Nick sees himself as like a failure, mediocre person. And yet uh, Goldblum sees him as this like person on a pedestal that you should be living your life trying to model after. Yeah. And I think that's interesting too, because I think Goldblum's character could come off as like getting off on the ego trip of lording himself over Nick, Nick's character. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think instead, like because of Goldblum's performance and because of the way this character is written, he comes off as genuinely just very excited to see his old friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty great. So he invites them to this party that he's having tomorrow night. Uh, and then Nick and Meg go back to their hotel and they don't have sex. Uh, they, there's like a, a little bit of a discussion about it. And then, uh, I think Nick feels like her breast for a second, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, she cuts him. Remember? Cause he, he, they get, they buy like a beer from a cart or whatever. And he gives her the pull tab, like as a bar- fake, like a, you know, like, will you marry me again or whatever kind of thing. Yeah. And she still has it on like all these hours later and accidentally cuts him with it. And it's weird. And like sexual. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's what it is. But then he goes out and like sleeps on the balcony because they, she wanted to dump him <laughs> in the set right. dinner. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I think he like goes out and then he comes back in and like, he's like, Oh, do you want to? And she's like, I'm sleeping. Like I'm <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, she's very tired. And so, like, okay, whatever. And then they go back and they go to sleep. Uh, and the next day they're getting ready for Goldman's party and they have this like weird sex game that's happening while they're getting ready too. where like, yeah. uh, Nick is like on the floor, like staring at her vagina <laughs> Yeah. And, and it's like this like dominatrix type thing that she has over him. But then it just like ends. Yeah. It's just like a thing that she can do to him. You know, like right. she's got the new heels and the stockings and all that and calls him a dog or whatever. And then she's like, okay, go get ready. And she walks away. Yep. <laughs> all right. Yeah. And so they do. Uh, but again, but again, one of those things that you don't really see like a couple of this age uh, getting right. to do on screen all that often is interesting and i think this is also right after that right because he says like oh i don't have anything to get ready into <laughs> um and she's like i'm gonna save you this one time and then it's her in the store i guess at the hotel buying him a suit and stuff yeah uh and you get the hint where she's like oh our new mantra which hey any hall she's <laughs> like a new mantra just charge it to the room just charge everything yes um which you know may come back later <laughs> that, that may come back later of course yeah so they uh they talk about uh asking goldblum to get nick's book published also like uh, they mm. talk about like yeah maybe we can like you know he seems to be a successful writer maybe he can like give you some avenues in order to get your own book of philosophy published and 
all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then right before they leave, Nick accuses Meg of sleeping with the computer guy, Melek. Yes. Uh, which is also, and that becomes a whole thing. Uh, so he, he's like, oh, how many times can your computer get you broken? You're obviously sleeping with a technician. And he's like, coming, and she's like, that fucking nerd. What are you <laughs> talking about? And so this becomes like a whole fight because he doesn't trust her. And, uh, they fight basically the entire way as they enter Goldblum's party. Yeah. And I love the switch between that, right? Like they're having this big argument the whole way there in the stairwell, starting to go upstairs. She yep. even like slams him against the wall, uh, at one point. Yeah. And they're having this big argument, and then uh, you hear Goldblum call, like, oh, hello, like, down the staircase, and they immediately switch to, like, oh, hello, like, hey, oh, like, just so pleasant and excited to be there, and it's hilarious. Welcome here. Would you like some champagne? Please. Come on in, come on in. I was worried you guys weren't going to make it. I almost had a thrombo. Come on, come on. Uh, There's some great people in here, and they're dying to meet you. I've been talking. Yeah, thank you, Stefan. I've been thinking about you all day. Huh? Gorgeous hell is this? Let me see. Let me see. Come on, go in. They're French. I'm sure their lives are awful too. Don't leave me on my own. Isn't that what you want? There we are. <laughs> I lost you. Come on in. I didn't see. Oh, look at that. Come on in. I'm going to introduce you. I didn't see that black lacy. You. Yeah, I, I wish I had my sketch pad. Absolutely. So they enter Goldblum's party. Uh, They're introduced to everybody there. Uh, They meet Goldblum's wife, Eve. Uh, And actually, I wanted to ask this, because is Eve the woman that uh, Nick is staring at earlier on the motorcycle? I think it is. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. There's like earlier in the movie, there's like, I forget where his wife is, where Meg is, but there's a moment where I think it's like as she's escaping the dine and dash situation. I think it's as she's escaping the restaurant. Maybe not. Maybe it's maybe it's earlier than that. I think it's earlier than that. But okay. Yeah. But there's there's a moment where Nick is on the street and he sees this woman on a motorcycle and she takes her helmet off and he's like staring at her, like kind of struck by her beauty. Yeah. Right. And then later we see Goldman's wife Eve, and I'm pretty sure it's the same woman. I yes, yeah, I think so too. But I'm not 100. percent But yeah, and I and I don't think she and Nick ever interact at all in this party actually as well. Uh, maybe at the dinner table, but I don't really. Maybe remember. like as a pleasant like a hello kind of thing. But th- yeah, there, but there's there no is scene. A, there is a scene with her and Meg. Yes, uh, for sure. And so we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, yeah, so I'm pretty sure it's the same woman um, that he was staring at on the motorcycle earlier. Uh, she's also pregnant with Goldblum's child. Um, so she will be have like, you know, his his whole family is restarting again. Uh, and so, yeah, this is when uh, Goldblum and Nick, they kind of get away from the party for a little bit and just like talk in Goldblum's study. And, uh, you know, Goldblum is talking about, uh, you know, he's, he's either being brave or he's being foolish to start it all over again with a new family after being trapped by the first one. And he's like very self-aware of his own fault here you know he's very like mm-hmm. self-aware of the idea that like he's repeating the exact same pattern as he did uh you know in his in his previous life in new york um but he just feels like he has to go through it all over again for whatever reason it is uh and you know goldblum and nick they kind of talk about the old days goldblum has lines like ah the 60s and 70s lit the fire baby it was civil rights and it was feminism and all that yeah. kind of stuff <laughs> yeah yeah it's really interesting to see that like kind of perspective like that boomer nostalgia for themselves that like they were the counterculture of the 60s and 70s yeah and then did nothing with it <laughs> um and it's then actively, back in uh, it's big, big chill mode basically exactly yeah and then like actively hindered that um so that's interesting you know yeah. and they're kind of self-aware of that and and goldblum has the line of like how easy they had it and they just did whatever they wanted and it didn't matter and their sheltered cambridge lives and stuff like that and then here they are and, and i forget exactly how he describes it with like the divorce and the restarting the family and stuff in his like weird self-aware self-aware 
way where he says like, you know, I kept, I shopped around for therapists until I found the one that told me what I wanted to hear kind of thing. And right. It's like none of it's genuine, you know, kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. He, he lives a very superficial life. Um, yeah, I guess. But, and also during the scene, he also tries to solicit money from Nick too, which is like, I think for like some kind of cause that he's like backing or whatever, but he like, Oh, and if you donate like four, like $2,000 and all kind of stuff. And Nick's like, oh, I'll give you 4,000, you know, whatever. Like as if, cause he knows he's not going to give Goldblum that money. Yeah. I think it's some kind of like the way I interpreted it is one of those, like, you know, like literary societies or like one of those kind of old fashioned clubs, you know, kind of deal where like people right. smoke cigars and drink brandy and talk about politics and yada, yada, yada. Right. The parties you went to when you were an English master. <laughs> the shit that like, uh, you know, old English lords used to do in the 20s and teens and stuff. <laughs> one of those kind of deals like the yeah. F. Scott Fitzgerald bullshit. That's sort of what Goldblum is saying, right? Like that, like we in the 60s and 70s, we like kind of lit the fuse and all that stuff. And he wants to like stir it up again with the elites. Uh and that's what he's asking him. He's like, oh, if we do, you know, me and you do uh, 2,000, 2K, uh, whatever, 2K donation, we can get in. And Broadbent's like, man, I'll fucking make it four, uh, which is hilarious. Because the <laughs> whole first half of the movie, he's talking about how they need to save money. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think it's partially because he knows he's not going to give it to him, but also partially because yeah, I think he wants to fit in with this group. He's like, this, this is the yeah. group that he feels like he should be a part of, and he's not. You know, exactly. But yeah, so he has this conversation with Goldblum. Meanwhile, Meg is talking to Goldblum's wife, Eve. She's talking about how basically she's talking about how in love she is with Goldblum. But she's like a, a newlywed. Right. Right. And she's like, you know, a very like much younger than Goldblum is. And she's like, you know, very much in love with him. And she's talking about how smart intellectual he is. And she's like, oh, I'll never be bored by him. And she's like, what if he's bored by you? Uh, and it's like, oh, what? It's <laughs> like, huh? like poking holes in their marriage. And, you know, Meg, Meg's like staring at Nick and she's like, I, I don't really believe in the one <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like some really cutting stuff right here it's intense yeah and especially because i forget exactly you know like we talk about the like infidelity argument that they're having a lot of uh before this scene and like kind of her thing is like like you know you spend she spends 30 years being faithful to nick and being you know his loving wife and stuff only for him to this whole time assume she's the kind of person that would have cheated on him right and that's like kind right. of the crux of what her argument is there with Melik and all that stuff so like that's fresh on her mind when Eve is like oh isn't love wonderful and she's like fuck you <laughs> basically <laughs> Which is pretty incredible. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the both of them are kind of mingling around the party a little bit. And uh, Nick ends up meeting Goldblum's son, who is like locked away in his bedroom uh, and just like hanging out, listening to records and smoking weed. You know, Nick kind of just w- walks into the bedroom and is like, oh, I'm sorry. And he's like, we're about to walk out. But then they get to talking a little bit. And, you know, Goldblum's son's like, oh, you enjoying the party? And it's like, oh, I'm not sure enjoyment's really my thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which is pretty good. And they kind of start bonding a little bit and start learning about each other uh, some a little bit. And this is where his son, you know, talks, to, tells him that Goldblum's ex-wife tried to kill herself, his mom. And, you know, she's better now. But, you know, Goldblum really hurt them and all that kind of stuff. But they're just like chilling and smoking together and complaining about their lives. And it's, it's yeah. charming. It's nice. Jim Broadbent's character, you know, Jim, uh, Nick gets like very high. Yes. And he just like starts hysterically laughing at nothing. Uh, and you're like, I know that guy. Exactly. Yep. hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, and then while that's going on, uh, Meg is out in the balcony and this guy, Jean-Pierre, uh, comes over and uh, he starts kind of having a conversation with her, starts hitting on her a little bit and invites her for a drink after the party. Yes. Uh, and so she's like, hmm, interesting. And then she is like walking through the hallway and she peers into the bedroom that Nick and Goldblum's son are in. And she sees Nick give this like heartfelt monologue to Goldblum's son about how deeply he loves his wife. <laughs> 
mm-hmm. about how like emotional it makes him and about how like for him, sex was never physical. It's always been with love. And, you know, he so deeply loves his wife. And that's why it like hurt him so much. The idea that she could possibly be cheating on him. But he's so insecure about it. That's something he thought about all the time. Uh, and he has this like big monologue and Meg watches him give that whole monologue. And then she opens the door and tells him she's going out for the drink anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my fucking God. The way that he like pleads with her after that, when he she's like, oh, you know, this Jean-Pierre invited me uh, to go out with him after this and to have sex with him later. Uh, and he's like, what did you say? And she said, yes. And he's just like, please, please don't do that. Like, yeah. Please, please don't do that. And it's just like, no, like just fully soul crushing. Uh, just no, no facade, no snipes. Just like a loving husband begging his wife not to cheat on him. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Devastating. Yeah. yeah. But, but before they can, before she can leave with Jean-Pierre, they all got to have dinner together, which I'm sure won't be awkward uh, at all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so there's a big dinner at the, uh, at the party. Everybody's gathered together around the table. And then Goldblum begins the dinner by giving this big toast about Nick about like telling everybody what an incredible guy Nick is and you know what an influence he was on his entire career like if without Nick he wouldn't be the writer he is today and you know it was like entirely luck that he's the one who got successful and Nick wasn't and all this kind of stuff and he's just like giving this like effusive praise upon Nick and then Jim Broadbent follows that with a speech about how shitty his life has become (laughs) that speech is fucking amazing it's devastating it's so good And I, well, one, to continue the detail, they're sitting even further apart at this dinner table than they are were now, uh, Nick and Nick and Meg. Um, right. Yeah, they're, they're like way on the opposite ends of the table at this point, right? Yeah, they're like diagonal across from each other, and she's next to Jean-Pierre. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think I realized that he, in the speech, Broadbent, you know, while he's complaining about his whole life and explaining that everything's a sham and he's been fired for speaking inappropriately to a black student and his and his college is a factory designed to produce idiots or whatever he says. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I picked up on until you described it or you mentioned it earlier. Jim Broadbent describes his life as feeling like he's always falling out of a window, which seems like a specific dig at Goldblum's character's wife having jumped out a window. (laughs) Right. It's just a weird Ah. phrase for him to use in that moment. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And I didn't think I realized that until you said that before. But the son tells him that. So they he gives that whole speech, right? And he's like, everything is dumb and bad. And then Meg says something. And yes. I don't really remember what she says. You know, that's the interesting I, She tells her own story. And I mean, she's kind of like won over by Nick's speech, right? And she kind of like has this other story about her own love for Nick. Uh, yeah. And it's. It was good. I liked it, but I also have trouble remembering exactly what it was. I think because Jim Broadbent's speech, like, really is just a powerhouse yeah. uh, of acting and writing, and like, it just it really overshadows like whatever came right after it. <laughs> yeah, but then, so then they right they end up. We'll just we'll get to the thing, right? They end up leaving, uh, and it's pretty funny of Goldblum like chasing them down the stairs. Like, do you have my number? You can email me. Yeah. Like, uh, Kevin they're, Hart they're and, like. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they're they're like leaving the party in silence, like just kind of arm in arm and like kind of smiling and just like they're both leaving the party together and walking down all the stairwells and stuff. And Goldblum is like chasing after them, being like, "Yo, oh, we'll get drinks. How long are you in Paris for? Like he just goes yeah. like on and on and on uh, without, without any kind of response from them. And they just walk out. Yeah, and they just walk out and they end up on that bridge with the locks, you know, where like couples go yes. in Paris. And they have a little bit of a conversation, but she looks at him. It's a, uh, Meg looks at Nick and is like, how did you do that? 
Like, and and that was the thing that I was like, what did like win her back? Get them out of the party? Like, what was the thing that he did? Uh, and I can't, I couldn't quite figure that out. I mean, that is that is the question. I I, I all, the thought had crossed my mind watching this too that this is not the first time that they have gone through very similar stuff, you know, as a couple that they've seen in this movie. And I'm wondering if like part of it is like just sort of a game for them. Like this is, yeah. which I think that's also, you get a little bit more of that in that like weird sex game that they have um, when he's like staring at her uh, yeah. and he's on the floor. Um, but it almost like some of the, some of their behavior reminded me of like uh, who's afraid of Virginia Wolf, like the way that couple kind of acts to, like around each other and like they have this like weird mind games they're playing with the neighbors and all that kind of stuff and like how much of this is like a put on and like uh, for show for everyone else kind of thing or, right. or just for each other yeah and that's kind of what i thought was like was all of this just like to see how fucked up it could get this time you know right yeah. it's sort of how that feels especially then they go back to their hotel room and they're like gonna be arrested or whatever's happening <laughs> yeah. Which is hilarious that that's like a kind of epilogue. Because like you could see it just fade to black after this party. Yeah. Nope. No. Five more minutes. Yeah. They they go back to the hotel and uh, they 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 try to check out, but their credit card has passed its limit, uh, and their passports have been confiscated. So they literally they can't leave France uh, to go back to England because their passports are locked away in the hotel safe, and it will be until and their passports will be locked there until they can pay their bill. For the room that they stayed in for two nights, which they could not do because they have no money. <laughs> yeah, which I love their reaction when the guy shows them the bill. So before that actually is even funnier when they're like they get back to the room and there's like all the people in it and they're trying to scrub Jim Broadbent's like art off the wall or whatever he was doing. with. His, oh, yeah, because his... they, ca- they cause damage to the room also. <laughs> yeah, he's like making a collage on the wall. And they, they take their like hat, the fedora, and they run out and it's like this big chase of them through the back halls of the, uh, the hotel and the kitchens and all this stuff. Uh, and they come out into the lobby and like the guard, the security guard just waiting for them at the door. <laughs> like he knew where they were going the whole time. And it's this big thing, like when they dine and dashed and like yes. the same similar thing. And then they look at the bill and they're just like, oh yeah, that's a lot of money. We can't pay that. <laughs> yeah. They're like laughing about it as they're looking at it. Like this, mm. this, this is absurd. How is <laughs> like, yeah. it's weird that we got in this situation. <laughs> And yeah, so they, they can't pay this bill and they're tr- like trying to figure out what to do and they uh, get out of the hotel. The son calls again and uh, Nick tells his son, actually, you know, moving back in, not going to be a good idea. Uh, don't do that. Yeah. And he fake. Oh, we're going into a tunnel yeah. and hangs up on him, which is hilarious. <laughs> Just great. Uh, and then they kind of do the thing again where they're like, OK, well, we like this place. This place is too nice to dine and dash. They're like kind of like looking through like restaurants being like, can we do the dine and dash thing again? Is that going to work for uh, yeah. <laughs> places to go? Uh, and so they find a place where they can sit down, sit down for a while and they call Goldblum for help. They, they know Goldblum's in Paris. He's like their only contact. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they call Goldblum and they wait for him at the restaurant and they're sitting side by side again, actually. Uh, exactly. To note that. So they're sitting side by side in the restaurant, just kind of drinking together. Uh, and Goldblum arrives and he's like, oh, my God, your situation, that's, that's crazy. I, I can't believe that and all that kind of stuff. And see, he invites them to just kind of stay at his place for a while um, yeah. while they figure out their financial situation. Yeah. So, like, ultimately, they got to move to Paris anyway <laughs> um, <laughs> in a weird way. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I had the – so, like, they show that the – was it Band of Outsiders? Is that what it was called? Band of or, Outsiders, yeah. Band of Outsiders. Uh, earlier in the hotel, they watch it in their hotel room on TV and they kind of like goof around, dance to the scene. So then when they leave and they go to the bar where they're like sitting and waiting for Goldblum and, and Meg has the fedora on. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's like in the movie, the thing. That's neat. And then uh, Jim Broadbent gets up and puts the puts the coin in the uh, jukebox 
and starts doing the dance. Yes. And then Meg gets up and then Goldblum gets up and they do the, they do the thing. It's, the it's a perfectly choreographed dance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, uh, to they're doing the, uh, the band of outsiders dance, which is a, which is a pretty cool thing. And again, neither of us have seen band of outsiders. So that's not a reference that like I really picked up on as I was watching it. Um, but kind of caught up with that later. And, uh, Man, I should watch Band of Outsiders. I've heard it's great. Uh. Yeah, uh, I I was familiar with that scene. I think it's it's like a real a relatively famous like moment. Um, yeah, but I see it a lot with uh, Pinland Empire on Twitter. It does the side by side thing? Okay, because uh, I feel like it's been visually referenced in a lot of stuff. So like that's kind of a common GIF that he's posting. Um, yes. So I sort of knew it right away when they started doing it. I was like, ah, ah it's the thing. Nice. I was constantly, I'll tell you, mindful of. Gee, this is very special. I'm very lucky. Roger, you know, working with him actually on the set and him talking to me about the script before in the most intelligent and generous collaborative way and then on the set trying things and him going do this and do that. I love that part of it. And then, you know, doing things with them, working out there's a dance in the movie that we had to make up and, and it comes from a Jean-Luc Godard movie that I hadn't seen before and so seeing that and trying to do a little thing that was based on that was delightful fun practicing it with a choreographer and then it was very kind of um, communal and where we were shooting at least when I was there was we kind of shared a dressing room dressing area preparation area so it was just hanging around with these two guys uh, before in the hours, you know, while you're shooting, and that's as special and uniquely miraculous and magical experiences I've ever had. Yeah, there it is. So that is, and that's it. That's the end of the movie. All three of Roll them credits. are dancing. All of them, they're dancing to the jazzy piano music, and then that is the end. They're gonna stay with Goldblum for a while. Yeah, what a delight in a weird yeah. way. <laughs> it was a good movie. I one of those movies that like I really did not have any. Like, not that I thought it would be bad or anything, but I just had, like, no expectations going in because I had, like, never heard of it. Yeah. You know, and it's just one of those things like, oh, I'll watch this movie and see what happens. And, uh, you know, kind of a, a delightful discovery, which uh, we get every once in a while on this podcast. You know, like The Tall Guy, a movie that I had never heard of and ended up uh, loving, you know, that kind of thing. Or Deep Cover, a movie that also a movie uh, that I hadn't really known at the time. And then we watched it and was like, this is fucking great. This is this is so good. Or California Split was another one of those. Like, I think yep. this, this can like fit into that category of movies. I'm like, oh, this is this is really good. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like one of those, you know, adult drama relationship movies that like we don't see a ton of now. You know, it's, it's like a neat, neat to see have seen this to fit that genre, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think our next order of business is to get Mike to watch the uh, the before movies because uh, they are delights. They're really good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been one of those, you know, checkbox uh, things I'll get to eventually for a long time, and I just never did, so maybe this is the push. All right, fair enough. All right, and uh, before we wrap this up, Mike, we should get into some letterbox reviews for that weekend, first of which is a four-star review from the Poetic Critic, who said, Ah, Paris, now what? Starting over and over. Be patient with it. Yeah. it's pretty good. I like that I like one. It. I like that one a lot. All right, here's a three-star review from David Ehrlich, film critic for IndieWire. Uh, who said, written with precious little of the nuance, ache, and sensitivity that makes the before movie so special, this is still too sweet to dislike or dismiss. Bourgeois and obvious though it may be, as if a Roger Michel film could be any other way, Jim Broadbent is so appreciably desperate that it works. Jeff Goldblum is loud, and there's a scene where the two men and Lindsay Duncan recreate the dance from Band of Outsiders, so good show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, basically. Pretty much. Uh, Here's a three-star review from Vanina which reads, I love going on holiday with my parents. 
I'm 28 and love going on holiday with my parents. I realize how silly that sounds. My mom and dad are great people. We worked hard to have a grown-up relationship with each other. We share interests and introduce each other to new and old things. However, no matter how much we enjoy each other's company and the locations where we find ourselves, there has to be at least one blowout fight. (laughs) But more likely, several instances where we get so exasperated with each other, at least one of us gets on a bus in a huff to do their own thing. Le weekend was a lot like that. (laughs) Jim Broadbent and Lindsay Duncan portray a very lifelike 60-something married couple on a trip to France. There's moments of great affection between the two, which are heartwarming to see, but also endless bickering that make this quite a difficult watch. The film's realism is admirable, but luckily Jeff Goldblum pops up because realism doesn't always make for easy viewing. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Here's a three and a half star review from Ewan Harris, which reads... More films should have a surprise Jeff Goldblum appearance halfway through an unrelated scene. And what a delightful little sequence that was. <laughs> uh, beautifully understated performances from Broadbent and Duncan, a brutally honest, raw portrayal of love and marriage, weathered by the years, soft, intimate framing that contrasts the glistening beauty of Paris, and all underpinned by the most gorgeous, sultry jazz score. This is sumptuous stuff from Roger Michel, tonally jarring in moments, but executed with real elegance. A lovely little film, lighthearted in approach, but surprisingly touching. Nonetheless. And finally, here's a three and a half star review from Russian, which reads, reminds me of my failed attempt to learn the band of outsiders dance. I even watched YouTube instructional videos. Didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do a pretty good job when they do the like recreation scene. It's it's a well choreographed. It feels like they've been practicing, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. And, which is weird because you never see Jeff Goldblum practicing with them, but he just like jumps right in. I think I like to think they were practicing in the hotel room and then Jeff Goldblum already knows the dance. A hundred percent. Uh, all right. So that is that weekend, uh, directed by Roger Michelle. Good movie. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. This was a, a pleasant surprise and, you know, could be a, a secret masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but I did really enjoy this. Uh, and uh, cementing Robert Michelle as my favorite director of all time. <laughs> <laughs> He's the new Paul Schrader. <laughs> new Paul Schrader. Move, get out of here. Adam resurrected. Uh, all right, Mike, where can we find you online this week? You can find me at MD Film Blog on Twitter and Letterboxd. And if you'd like to donate to support the show, you could do that at our Kofi page, which is Kofi.com slash Mike and Mike Pods, uh, plural, because we have two podcasts. And you can find me online at uh, Mike Smith, M. Smith Film Blog on Twitter, Mike Smith Film Letterboxd, and Radio Mike Sandwich Instagram. Thanks so much for listening to The Complete Works. I'm Mike Smith. That's my decree show. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app. And if you want to contact us, you can tweet at us at Goldblum Pod. You can find the rest of our podcast on Rapture Press alongside many other podcasts, but comic books and movie news and all that good stuff. Our theme song was created by Kyle Cullen, who you can reach for your own podcast themes at Kyle's Podcast Themes at gmail.com. And our logo was designed by Jacob Honeycutt or at Jacob Honey on Twitter. And we want to thank our social media advisor, Daniel Clark, as well. Join us on the next Complete Works. We'll be discussing a movie that is, by all accounts, truly dreadful. (laughs) (laughs) And that is 2015's Mordecai, which is a movie that I was kind of excited about when it came out, Mike. What? Um, uh, only because it was a movie uh, directed by David Coep, who had just recently directed a movie that I love, uh, which is Premium Rush. Wow. Uh, 2012's Premium Rush, which starred Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a bike messenger being chased down by Michael Shannon. Great movie. Incredible. <laughs> love that movie. Own it on Blu-ray. Uh, I've never seen Mordecai. <laughs> <laughs> I was excited about it until it came out and the reviews came in and it turned out it was like one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> Great. So. So uh, we got that to look forward to next week. That'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, plus, this week, I'm Mike and I go to the movies. We're doing some discussion. So thanks so much for listening, guys. And remember to go for the gold bloom. <laughs>